Amen. Good morning. Keep the, I don't know how many of you guys know the Kennedy family. Pastor Jonathan did the service yesterday. Keep, keep them in your prayers. They lost their youngest son, 20, 21. And uh, so just keep them in your prayers, please. We're in the first chapter, uh, the, uh, the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Who in here enjoys being rebuked? Give me a show of hands. <laughs> Proverbs 27.5 tells us, open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. And you know, Paul, he's not going to hide the fact, and he that he gives a stinging rebuke right here to the Corinthian church. Rebukes can be hard. Often they come as a surprise. It's like if your friend has on a nice shirt and it's really not that cool and his best friend will tell him, hey, that shirt really doesn't look good on you. It's though if understood in its proper context, the rebuke is often helpful. I know you guys know I'm a football fan, so I've seen a lot of games and things like this. But have you guys ever seen the reel of, I I forget if it was an interception or a fumble, but the guy picks it up and he begins to run the football to the wrong end zone. He's just dodging people, should have been a running back. I think he was a lineman or a linebacker. And he's just, just... they were even his own teammates were saying, You're going the wrong way, you're going to try to tackle him. But they failed at that. That guy needed a sharp rebuke at the time. Problem is, he was going the wrong way and he didn't realize it. I know you feel good about this, and you see the end zone, and you're going, but it's the wrong way. Well, Paul is saying that to this Corinthians church because they think they're doing some pretty good things here. And Paul has to step up like the coach that he is on the sideline, waving his arms, doing everything he can tell them that they're going the wrong way. I can see it. I can hear him explaining to them, you're you're going the wrong direction, but it's doing them no good. And my hope is that as we try to identify with the Corinthian church as to try to speak these words Paul's trying to, and more importantly, the Holy Spirit, just like the proverb says, open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Proverbs 8, 9, the latter part of that says, rebuke a wise man and he will love you. And that's kind of my hope this morning. At the end of this sermon, you guys will still love me. So let's tackle the last part of this chapter. I know I'm taking my time with 1 Corinthians. I enjoy taking my time. It's not like we're going to win a prize or we're going to get a big uh, carrot cake after we finish. So I like to take my time in these scriptures. Verse 17 tells us, now in giving these instructions, Paul says, I do not praise you, can't give you a high five, since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Your meetings, they do more harm than good, Paul says. I know you think they're good, and you feel like you're moving in the right direction, but it's not the case. He says, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, Paul says, I believe it. I know you guys. Verse 19, Paul is dripping with sarcasm as he usually does here. He says, for there must also be factions among you that those who are approved, wink, wink, may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. It becomes your supper. 
For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry. I mean, it's all about you and your meal, not the Lord's supper. It becomes your supper because you're so anxious to get it going, to to grab this potluck, and another one over here is getting drunk. Paul says, what, do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God, and shame those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Not going to cheerlead on your behalf this time. He, He says in verse 21, coming off verse 20, he says, it's really not your supper. You have to understand. It's the Lord's supper. Although it should be because in this cultural context we're looking at, what they would do before the Lord's Supper, it was called by the first century Christians the agape meal, the Greek word for love. It's the, we could call it the love potluck. Everybody has been to a potluck. You know, you bring your little casserole, you, you bring your salads, you bring that big Kentucky fried chicken with you. I love that. And, and they would be in these large houses or they would be out in the courtyards, whatever, but they came to share the meal. And you have to understand the layering of the Roman and Greco-Roman culture, though they are a lot of folks, they came with really, many of them came with really nothing. They probably brought their fork or their napkin, but that's all they had. They were expecting food. And Paul says, what I'm really seeing here is that this Lord's Supper, which was probably at the end of the agape feast, where we take the bread and drink the cup to remember Christ, and we'll talk about that next week. Paul says what's happening is I recognize that in this event, it's revealing your bad motives, your bad attitude. And the motive is this has become an event that's really about you. It's not the Lord's Supper anymore. This is kind of your supper. As a matter of fact, each one of you, and what we don't see in the English sentences, what's so clear in the Greek sentence is piling on of these uh, pronoun, personal pronouns. Literally, it says each one of you with your own stuff, your own meals, you're going ahead, you're moving ahead, you are just rushing ahead to get to your food. You're not waiting for anybody else. This has become your event. It's your meal. And Paul is rebuking them with a simple reminder that really it's not supposed to be about you. It's not supposed to be about me. And that's a hard thing for us to recognize, particularly in the cultural context that we live in, particularly in the church culture that we live in. And you know how church is done and now how churches are planted and how pastors are trained in seminary these days. I, you know, I think we've missed the central point and it's, it's a bit of a stinging rebuke Paul applies here, particularly when he puts it in the most raw form. We've got to realize, number one, Church is not about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. That'd be helpful to write down. And, and, be, and to be good for us, it would be good for us to say to ourselves, when we get up in the morning, decide whether or not we're coming to church, we need to think, wait a minute. This isn't about me. It's not Emily's worship service. No, no. It's the Lord's worship service. It's not PV's supper or potluck or outreach event. No, it's the Lord's stuff. These are the Lord's meetings. This is about him. It's not about us. And yet, it's so easy for us to get into, get into the mentality, and we play to that. I mean, think about it. And maybe you wouldn't know because you didn't sit through any classes, 
But I think about training in, in Bible school and so much of it was affected by this kind of consumer mentality that my job is to provide a product that people would be interested in and that people would like. Christians would consume. You know, we used to go to a Christian bookstore all the time. I couldn't wait to get there uh, on Sunday after church and go into Bereans or some of those that's not around anymore. You have to go online for these books, but they're the same thing. It's about self-help most of the time, and, and you can finally find a decent book about Christ in them. You have to really hunt hard if there's any in there because it's about trying to set up services for people. And I got a news flash for you. In these passages, it's really not about people. These services are not for you. It's not about your stuff. This is about God's stuff. And we've got to get that straight in our minds, but there's so much compromise in this area. I think about when I was raising my kids, Lydia and I, whether it was a birthday for one of them, the other one was always jealous. We say, get over it. It's her day or it's his day. Just get over it. And you can celebrate with us or you can go to your room, but we're going to celebrate. God forbid if we'd ever raise a generation of people that think that church is like that also, because this is not your party. It's God's. It's not about you. This is not for you. And I, don't get me wrong about it, and don't misquote me later, because I know several will, but please at least listen to me. I don't want you to go away thinking that I said church is not to be a blessing to you. Oh, it often is, I hope. That worship is something that that's inspires you or preaching is something that edifies you. All of that is true. And it can happen and hopefully it does because that's the kind of God we serve. But you see, the idea is when I say to my son, your sister is having a party today and I really hope you have a good time. But if you find yourself an hour into it, and you're not having a good time, I don't care. And it's the same thing that God would have us recognize this morning. This service is not about us. Our meetings are not about us. The communion service, the worship songs, the preaching, and Emily does a great job picking songs. She, she reads the scripture. She picks songs that's going along with the message, except when I'm going Four verses at a time, she, it's hard for her to pick. Even our fellowship is really not about us. Now, we do things to make it palatable and helpful, and we got, we got nice seats, cushioned seats, so you can sit down in, you can kind of relax. We have snacks in the lobby. We try to make this agreeable, but the idea is not, it's not really for us, your needs. It's really to focus on our God. Our God is, we're called to honor God in these services. Our quest and our job description is to bring glory to God, not ourselves. And so we've got to recognize that we, we have to fight this default mode in our hearts. And it's there, no doubt about it. I mean, our default mode is self. It's as relevant as why you came to church this morning. You've got to start, we've got to start to recognize, to realize that this is something we normally will do. We will have to fight unless we give it some thought. I was reading this sociologist, and I think he was a non-Christian, and from what I could tell anyway, who wrote a study on why people go to church. And he listed all of his findings in this report. And I was reading through it this week, and he started to summarize these things in categories. He said, people go to church, number one, to improve their family. They go to church to improve 
their character. They go to church to make friends. They go to deepen friendships. They go to church to gain control of their lives. They go to church to recapture childhood experiences. I don't know if I would go to church for that because I remember as a child getting pinched by my mom all the time to wake up or straighten up in the chair. <laughs> they go to church to benefit from the teaching. He said they go to church to fill a void in their life. So he's getting close. He went on and on, and I saw something painfully absent from this list until I finally got to a section when he talked about people that go to church for God. He stumbled through it trying to explain that. And as a matter of fact, at one point in this report, he said he labeled it this group as people that go to church. And I love it. This is the reason he said, for no logical reason. That's you guys, for no logical reason. I hope that's all of us this morning. Because from his perspective, it wouldn't make sense to go, to go to church. See, it only makes sense really if you're gonna go to get something out of it. Now, what is it that you go to church to get out of it from? See, in reality, God's saying it's really not about what you're going to get out of it. This is not your time. It's not your service. These songs are really not for you. This is for God. So let's start going to church for what the world would think is an illogical reason. And that is that this isn't to benefit you. Now, again, I'm saying you won't be benefited by it. You might, and it would be nice if you do get benefited from it. That general, it's generally what happens. But this can only apply to everything in Christian life, not just our meeting. Think about this. Why do we read our Bibles in the morning? Why do we pull up Remind on the prayer app to pray for people? For us, if we do it for us, we miss the point. Now, here's the stinging part of the rebuke. Are you ready? Turn with me to, uh, or it might be on the screen, Malachi. The stinging part of the rebuke is when God sees people who come to worship for themselves. When they think it's about them, God no longer shows up. He's not interested in coming. That's how self-centered God really is. Because by definition, God is the center. And when he, when, and when he sees people that gather together under the guise of God, and yet they come for their own purposes, and they're not coming to glorify, to honor, or to respect God, God says, I don't want any part of it. I'm not in interested in it. Malachi 1.6 says, a son honors his father, at least he ought to, and a servant his master, that's how it works. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am the master, where is my reference? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. God says, let's just start at the top. We'll start with the priests. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? God's response. You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you by saying the table of the Lord is contemptible? And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Hmm. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus said, uh, repeating Isaiah's prophecy, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's not about me anymore. And God is so emphatic with it. He's going to take his attention elsewhere. And he says this in Malachi uh, chapter 1, verse 11. He says, my name will be great among the Gentiles. 
And if it's not going to be here in Jerusalem, I'll go somewhere else. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And God says, I'm going to be honored. I'm going to be respected. I'm going to put, you're going to put me first somewhere. And if you think that's cruel, mean that org of a God in the Old Testament, then the New Testament, Jesus Christ, we, we like to consider him meek and mild. He would never have that perspective. Revelation reads the first three chapters, the picture of Christ. He's the King of kings, Lord of lords, who walks among the lampstands, and you know that's his churches. And then for three chapters, he sends seven news flashes to these seven churches. And he says, listen, you better get your act together or I'm going somewhere else. He threatens them. He's going to snuff out their lampstand. And I'm not going to show up anymore. As a matter of fact, the last one, the last church, Laodicea, he goes and he says, I stand at the door and knock. And that's not the door of your heart. That's nice for an invitation, for salvation. But the picture is God is on the outside and he's knocking, trying to get into his own church. What does that imply? He's not inside. He's not there because God's not going to play a peripheral role in any church. He has to be the main piece of the puzzle. We must be about him. If it's about you this morning, he's going to stand in the lobby and wait until someone gets up and goes out who wants to hear what he has to say. But he's got to be the attention. He's got to be the center. This is about him and not us. God doesn't show us how to worship when we think it's about us. I know that can be tough, and it's hard for us to hear, but it's where we start. And I know it's so countercultural because I think about how many churches are planted this way with the philosophy that this is about people. I see their billboards everywhere I go, but it's really not about you. We gather for Christ's sake, not for yours. That's not a surprise to me that we expect this in churches today because most of us were sold the bill of goods when someone pitched the gospel to us and we have to be careful what they say and how they say it. How are we pitched the gospel? Come on now, you know. Christ will be a really good benefit to you. Now, is that true? Yes, it is true. But that's not the appeal of the scripture. The appeal of the scripture is that Christ, I like to call him the loophole, with all these laws that we could never keep, the Ten Commandments. But somewhere, if you read the Old Testament enough, you find a loophole. And that's Jesus Christ. There's a way out if you're a sinner. And we're all that. And it comes through Christ's death, giving his life for us. That's the loophole. That's where all the attention must be on Jesus Christ. So 1 Corinthians eleven twenty says, Therefore, Paul says, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Now, it's subtle there. I realize because he unpacks it fully in the next few verses we'll look at next week. It's, it's really a bit of a corrective, though it's not worded grammatically. Therefore, Paul says, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat, once again, the Lord's Supper. So let's keep the focus on Christ. That's what it's about. This is the Lord's meeting. When we do communion, it's the Lord's Supper. When we hold events, it's the Lord's events. These are supposed to be focused on him. I'm reminded when we first planted the church, Pastor Brian, we were talking, he said, uh, whatever we do, if it's okay with you, Pastor Victor, 
And it's always okay with me, Bron. He's in line. Bron says, whatever you do, whatever we do, whether it's an outing, whether it's an event, we always want to bring the Scripture, put the Scripture in it, whatever we're doing. That's what it's about, the Scripture. They, some people might not be getting fed until Sunday, and they need to hear the Word. So whatever event, whether it's a, a youth event, do a Bible study, do whatever you need to do, but put the Scripture in there because it's about the Lord Jesus. Now, if that seems that I've just stepped away from God, realize this, that God the Father is glorified when we're talking about his son. Yahweh is glorified when we promote in our minds, in our churches, and make the sinner his son, the Messiah. That is how he's glorified. Matter of fact, Philippians 2 10, 11, I think I read this at least once a month, but I love the scripture. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is, what's that word? Lord, curios. He's the one in charge. He's the boss. Jesus Christ is Lord. When people confess that and bow their will and bow their lives to that, that glorifies God, and that's what it's all about. God is ultimately glorified when people put their focus on our human-slash-divine representative, Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. He's our focus. The focus is on Christ. You can't honor the Father anymore as when we're speaking about his son in our Bible readings, in our preaching, and everything that we do when we put our focus on Christ because it's about him. Keep your focus there as a matter of fact. And we're going to look at Colossians 1.16, and I love this. It's helpful, and I want you to look at these two words at the end of this passage as we think about the fact that this is the Lord's meeting and these are the Lord's events and this is the Lord's worship and this is the Lord's teaching and this is the Lord's supper, we have it together. This is so helpful because it's so broad. These two words speaks volumes for us. It says in verse 16, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him. And what's those two words? For him. I used to love that. Is that group still around? Paul, you know if that group's still around? <laughs> I used to love for him. They just said for the, the letter, the number for. But everything is created for him. Keep reading. Verse 17, and he is before all things. And in him all things consist, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the prototokos, the firstborn from the dead, the prototype, that in all things he may have, I love the preeminence, but we're going to stick with that he may have the supremacy. That's King James' word, I think. Question for you this morning. Does he have the supremacy in your life? And we need to ask that question, not on the basis of what we do. That's so important for us to catch, but why we do it. Not on what we do, but why we do it. That's the direction we need to make. Because the Corinthians were saying, hey, I'm running the ball down the field. And what was Paul? Paul was having to say, no, you're going the wrong way. I know you think you're doing the right thing, but you're going in the wrong direction. That's what it's about. Motive. Your motive is wrong. And it's not about the supremacy of Christ. This is not about being done for the benefit or for the glory and the honor and the respect of Christ. And therefore, we fail. 
And that's the problem with motives. They're hard to see because we can look in our lives and say, hey, we're going to church regularly now. Hey, I'm even putting a couple of bucks in the bucket. But the problem is, if we think doing good things make us good, we missed it. Because it's not just doing good things. It's doing good things with the right motive. That's what it's about. And if the motive is wrong, we're in big trouble. So let's be aware of our motives. Start to ask the question, not just what, but why. And put this reference down as we think about it. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 tells us, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsel of the heart. Then each one prays will come from God. See, we're going to really be evaluated, not just on what we do. We're going to be evaluated on why we do it. And so we've got to start asking that question and tuning in to our motives. Why did you come to church today? Why are you going to pick up your Bible tomorrow morning before you go to work? Why are you going to sit down with the prayer list tonight and pray? Why? Why? Well, the point of Christ is that everything is to be focused on him. This is all for his glory. This is all for his supremacy. This is so that he'll have the first place in everything we do. All things were created by him and for him. I'm reminded of, uh, I put it out before, I love Christian rap if they're good, and most of them aren't that good. But there's a few out there that's really good. But I'm reminded, I take you back, I digress. I'm reminded, and God is so good. When I first got saved, I said, darn, I can't listen to any music. And I found this, uh, these rappers, Cross Movement. They're old now, just like I, but boy, were they on point. And I'm reminded, I'm not going to try to rap it, but just a little quick line. He speaks, he's talking about 1 Corinthians. He's saying, why are you bragging if you catch this football, talking about the NFL, and you're running it down the field and you're making moves and you're scoring touchdowns and you act like you're doing something? The point of that, he says, God gave you the ability God gave you that ability. You should be giving him praise. Now, I say they give you the fake praise and all that. Maybe some of them are believers. But my point is, why do we boast about anything that we have or anything that we do? Because it all goes back to God. It's amazing to me. I digress once again. <laughs> so ultimately, though, we need to have this in view. I need to have that as my ultimate goal. And it starts with me tuning in to my motives. Not just what, but why I do things. And that it, then that evaluates my motives. It blesses me that I go to church. I, I, I really like going to church. I seek God because he gives me goodies when I pray. We should do all those things so Christ would be glorified. I'm doing this that Christ would be exalted. I'm doing this so Christ would be pleased. I want Christ to be blessed. Those are correct motives. And so now all of a sudden, you, be, you begin to weigh whatever you do by your motives in everything you do. Whether it's a Bible study, whether it's the Lord's Supper, listening to a preacher, whatever it is in this Christian life, not only tune in to the motives, but ruthlessly evaluate the motives. We're going to talk about David and his schizophrenia real quick. Psalms 103, what did David say? You remember what he did? He walks into the worship hall, and he has to say to his soul, because he's not feeling too well this, this evening. It's a Wednesday service. He has to fight to get here. He had a hard day at work. He had an argument with Bathsheba as he goes into the worship hall. And he's not feeling it. But what did he say? 
So praise the Lord. So bless the Lord. We need to consciously tell ourselves the motive, that motive, that should be all of us. And the motive should be, I should go to church this morning because you, you created me in your image. And I want to bring glory to you, God. And you are there to go and bring him a blessing by the way you worship him, by the way you interact with his people, and by the way you respond to the teaching of his word. So I'm going this morning, and I need to go. So wake up. We're going to glorify God today. I not only tune in to the motive, now I start telling myself, hey, self, you really ought to be going to a Bible study for the benefit of God. See how this works? It helps us tremendously because so many are so conditioned to thinking it's about us that when, it's no lo- when it no longer feels good for us anymore, we stop doing it. How many times we stop studying the Bible, we say, because it's getting dry. How many times do we change churches because we're thinking it's really, it's really doesn't thrill me anymore? Let's go to the church down the road. Maybe that one will really wake me up. You know what? It's not about you. So please recognize it's about God. And so you tell your soul when you go to church, I'm going to glorify God. We also need, after that, to purify our motives. Here's the way I like to think about it. Stick with me. What if you don't ever in this life, following the Lord Jesus Christ, you never get a blessing? You never see the things you might would like to see, but you're following the Lord. And it kind of reminds me of Romans 9, 3. What if there is no pot of gold at the end of this rainbow for the believers? Now, we know that there is, but it also is helpful for me to purify my motives. Why am I doing things? Not just tell myself what the motive should be, because God is the kind of God who always does bless his people sooner or later. There's benefit, hear me, there's benefit in serving God and honoring him. But let's just assume for a minute that's never gonna happen. That's helpful for me to purify my motives when I'm doing things. Think about it. If I knew that tomorrow morning, there's not one benefit I'm going to get out of studying the Bible, I need to before I go to bed. I need to make that decision. I am resolved that I'm going to study the text because I know that pleases the Lord. Because when I study the scripture, it glorifies God. So I'm going to do that regardless And I'm just going to assume right now I won't get any benefit from it. Now, of course, there is. And I know in the back of my mind there will be some, but that also purifies my motives when I'm doing things. Let's just think about going to church and being active in your church. That honors God that honor God so much when we are active in the church. You know what? I think God's number one, his number one thing that makes him smile is when we serve. Notice I said we. We serve where we don't want to serve. But we do that because we know we please the Lord. When we go into that nursery and we serve you need, to, you need to have the mindset, Lord, this is pleasing to you. This is benefiting you. And we do that. It's his needs. It's his wants. And that helps me adjust my motive. For me, that's helpful. So even if I have no blessings for the rest of my life down here, 
Remember I told you all about that wooden cardboard box under the bridge? God is the God that he always does blesses, but say if he never did, I'm going to follow him anyway because it's right. It's sort of like Job 13, 15 when he says, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. And the gospel that's been pitched to us is we follow Christ because what we can get out of it. And the bottom line is when Jesus says, follow me, he asks you why. Because he's the king of kings and Lord of lords. And this is supposed to be about him. And it's so helpful for me. Now, again, listen to me. You can contort that. You can twist that. You can misquote that. I'm not saying that there's no blessing in following the Lord. I hope that you all get blessed while you're following him. But I'm saying that it's sometimes it's helpful to purify your motives why you do things if there is no blessing in it. It's kind of like, I got a great example. It's like my kids being taught to honor their dad by getting in the car when dad says, hey, it's time to go. The tagline is, we're going to the movie. My kids used to love going to movies. I took, probably took them to see some things they shouldn't have seen. I'm just telling on myself. But probably took them to some movies. They loved going to the movies. I, I, I had no problems getting them in the car when it was movie time. They jumped in. We went and seen the movie. And here's the thing. If that's the only thought they had when I responded to them respectfully, promptly, in honor, they followed that, something's wrong with that. Something's wrong with that. See, they should jump in the car even if I told them, we're going to the dump, I'll pack sandwiches, we're going to watch the crows pick the, 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 the trash. They, they should have jumped in happy and excited if, the, if I told them that. That's what God is saying. When he says, I want you to do this, I want you to serve here, I want you to do that, we don't even look. We shouldn't even look. What's in it for me? We obey because it's God. And we're in the vineyard with him once again. So we're, he's working right beside us. So even when he asks us to do things that we say, hey, I really don't want to, but daddy, since you said it, I'm going to honor you, we jump in and we, we help. That's what God wants. Honor me because I've given you salvation. Honor me because I'm the one who's putting food on your table and, and giving you health and doing all those other things. Yes, you, you could want more and it could be better because we're selfish, but he's going to give us what we need, no doubt about it. And that's what Paul is saying. You guys are eating. And what God is so good because when I said, come on, and the kids jump in and go to the movie, wonder if I surprise them. They're thinking they're going to the movies, and I take them to Disneyland on that same, how, how much excited they would be. That's how my God blesses me when I honor him. And my, I honor him by following him. And even when I don't see, I don't understand where you're leading me, but I'm going to trust you, Daddy, because I love you. That's how he opens up the world for us and gives us and pours on us blessings upon blessings upon blessings because we obey him. That's what it's about. So tune in to your motives. Tell yourself what they ought to be. Latter part of verse 22. What do you not have? What do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. You're eating all of the fajitas and not waiting on the poor. That's what they're doing. People are out of work. They don't have food to eat. Some people would come with a fork and a napkin ready to be fed. And we would lump up in these cliques and say, hey, you're not having any of mine. You're not having any of mine. And Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is saying, if you were following me, you know you're going to eat at home. If you were following me and obeying me, you would take your food and give it to 
the people who didn't have any, who didn't know where their next meal would be. And that's what, once again, that's what I'm learning from 1 Corinthians for the first time. It's not about me. It's about others. Because it wasn't about Jesus Christ and him. It was about others. And that's what we need to be. If we're being blessed, we need to help the less fortunate in this body right here and then let it spread out. But we need to be here for others. And that's what Paul is getting on them for. You're not putting people's needs before your own, Paul says. You're not being conscientious. You're not being courteous. You're not being kind, Paul tells them. Paul says, I see the symptoms. I, 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 I see how you're behaving, and I already know what the problem is because I'm watching your actions. That's what he's saying, and I know what the cure needs to be. If there's a relational problem, if I'm struggling, having problems with you guys, it boils down to the vertical relationship. Wouldn't you agree? I've got a Jesus Christ problem. I'm, Paul says, I'm hearing horizontal issues here. You're putting your needs before others. You're not serving others and caring for others. But I know it's a vertical issue. And when that gets straightened out, everything else will fall in line. Let's close with 1 John 4, 7 through 11. Worship team can come up. If I just read 1 John 4, 7, 11, excuse me once again, I could have read that to you and said, let's walk out. <laughs> but I, I, I like talking. <laughs> this is what it says. Beloved, an old 90-something-year-old man still thinking of his Savior laid his head on his breast the one whom Jesus loved, he still knew that. He says, beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. I digress. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking, Victor. It is not easily angered, Victor. It keeps, I love this, it keeps no record of wrongs. Wow. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. He had learned that very well, John. Go back to verse 8. He says, he who does not love does not know God. There's the litmus test. For God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In, in this is love that we that not, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation where all the wrath of God was fired down on his son for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. My relational relationship with you guys boils down to how much I'm letting God pour into me. That makes me patient. That makes me kind. That makes me gentle. I cannot be any of those things unless I spend time with the Lord. And that's what we're called to do. We, we are his children and he goes on to say, love never fails. We need to understand this is not about us. If you're being blessed, chalk it up to God. You've did nothing. You may have put in the work. You may have did that, but it was God working in you to even do that. 
We owe him. We owe him our lives. Don't get it twisted. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's about honoring him. This is the last time for this day. I'm going to digress, but I got to say this because I love the movie Gladiator. And I love when the lady got up there at the end when, when Maximus had died and they put him on the shield and, they, and she said, honor him, honor him because he had laid his life down for the Roman world. And every time I see that scene, I think about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit or Jesus or Yahweh, he's not saying honor him, honor him. He's saying you should honor him. You should. Look what he's, look what he's done. He's given his life for us. It should be motivation to honor him, that we get to honor him. Let's not forget that. And we honor him by loving him, and he gives us the grace to spread it on around you guys. That's what it's about. That's what 1 Corinthians is about, benefit of loving your neighbor. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. You are so awesome. No one loves the way you do. No one gets slapped in the face as you do daily. And you still call us back to love you. May we honor you in our lives. And the only way we can show that we're honoring you is to love the brethren. Love the brethren. Lord, I pray for anyone who's going through something that's tough and they don't see your goodness, they don't see your kindness, they don't see your helping hand. Lord, would you reveal that to them? Would you show them how much you love them? How much you, you're never going to leave them or forsake them? Oh, it might be foggy right now. But in the end, you're going to prove yourself strong because that's just who you are, Lord. May we be your hands and feet, starting at Restore Church on helping one another before we go outside to help, Lord. But may we serve you with a passion. And I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.